Good to see you, my friend. Good, Good to see you too. It's been I, um, quite a long time. It's been a long time. I, I say that your voice is very soothing, actually. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> the face and voice for radio. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I grew a beard ever since the last time we met. So. It's quarantine. I grew, uh, you know, I didn't catch COVID-19, but I, I gained COVID-19 in terms of weight. <laughs> I think this is a... We're all exploring different aspects of ourselves. Uh, for better, for worse. <laughs> You're over 31 million seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. I first met our next guest about 10 years ago at our alma mater, the University of California, Berkeley. Go Bears. Jimmy was wrapping up with his PhD, studying with the great Edmund Campion, and I was just beginning my own journey towards becoming a conductor. Jimmy's music has inspired, captivated, and put simply, been heard the world over. His most well-known work, Fiesta, a suite of four dances for orchestra, for instance, has been performed by over a hundred different orchestras alone. His Oratorio Dreamers, premiered by Esapekka Salonen and the Philharmonia, his opera Bel Canto, premiered by the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and hailed by luminaries such as Placido Domingo as one of the great new operas of our time. Jimmy's music has the ability to connect with both musicians and general audiences, a rare feat. His works amplify new perspectives, new voices, new dreams. He's one of the composers of the present day whose music likely will have a very long future ahead of it, ahead of us. First off, how are you okay. doing? We're in quarantine. Again. <laughs> it feels like we never got out of it, to be honest. Yeah. Did you travel I... at all during the break? No, I'm going to travel for the first time now, uh, just a few days from now, to Lima, Peru, because I have to visit my mom. Beautiful. And in, in all honesty, I would have postponed the trip if I could, but at this point in time, 
I need to take care of things down there. It's been too long yeah. since I was there last. I yeah. I can relate. I in October went back to New York for the first time in a while. It's hmm. uh, you know, family, friends, all of that. It's uh, you know, we can't live in the bubble forever. No, we can't. We can't. Uh, we have to be as careful as we can, take all the precautions, exactly. and try to go on with our lives. You know. Exactly. So, Jimmy, first off, I want to say, I don't know if you remember, I was a freshman at Berkeley your last year, your PhD, and I think that's where we first met. That will be 2011, 2011 2012. Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. Yes. You're with Ed mostly, right? Yes. Actually, he was, he was the first person I, I got in touch with. Right prior to coming to Berkeley, he was already a professor, of course, and I was looking for a place to continue my studies. And so I, I emailed him back in 2005, and I sent him some of my scores to just to get a, a feel of whether he thought I was a good candidate for the program. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came back with, you know, very enthusiastically, and, but he did suggest I apply to also other universities. Got it. Um, but luckily I got into Berkeley, which was the place I wanted to be at. So beautiful. And I applied in 2007. Were you, uh, you were in Helsinki right before then you weren't living in Peru at the time. No, I had left Peru already seven years prior. I, I, see. I yeah, I, I was in Helsinki since 2000 until August of 2007 when I moved to, to California. God bless. Mm. It's it's so interesting because your music i mean let's we could start with bel canto because a, an opera in so many languages bringing together so many people in this terrible event that's staged i mean it, the the novel is fantastic the original novel and the the opera brings together languages and cultures and different people in this very intense setting and i'm just curious because your background, it comes from so many directions and places on Earth as well. I mean, in Peru, right. in Helsinki, your education in the U.S., plus now collaborating with all the top orchestras. I'm just curious uh, where you stand in terms of, like, the syncretic composite sort of uh, identity comes into That's play. an interesting thing for, I think, all composers of our time face similar questions because, obviously... We live in a more uh, interconnected society, and so we are subject. Even if we don't physically move from one country to the other, we are actually uh, feeding from these massive sources of information that are readily available wherever you are in the world, practically. So that already is a game changer. But many of my colleagues have traveled or lived abroad, and I. I'm no exception. I mean, uh, what perhaps makes my case a little more extreme is like how different the places that I've been to are and how far Certainly. apart they are. Certainly. Um, so polarized. Correct. I, so I was born in, in Lima, Peru. My parents are from Lima as well. And we lived in Miami for one year, actually, when I was a child. So that already was a little, um, a little different for me. It exposed me to a completely different society and culture and language. Uh, that was when I was 11 to 12 years old. 
And that's right around the time that I discovered I wanted to be a musician, actually. Interesting. And, and then when I completed my, you know, my high school studies, I was, I wasn't ready to get into the conservatory. So I had to prepare for, for mm -hmm. a couple of years that were very important to me. Once I got into the conservatory, I already knew you know, that, you know, the, the education in Peru was great, but the one limiting thing is our, our musical medium wasn't that developed. So, and certainly it is much better now, you know, than it was back then. Uh, now we do have international orchestras visiting and and important soloists and musicians, but back then it, that we were not really part of the circuit, you know. Mm, yeah. Um, people who probably travel to Argentina and Chile and then skip us and go up to Colombia, who knows, um, or further up. Uh, so we were not really uh, exposed to that. Now we actually are part of it. And whenever there's a Latin American tour, you have, you know, Alan Lang or a Rene Fleming traveling down there. But back then it wasn't the case. So I was on the search for um, a place where I could actually be exposed to all that, and especially uh, where contemporary music had a thriving kind of presence. Definitely. Yeah. So you were 11, 12, you were in Miami. That's right. Um, and it was, you know, I had started to play the piano when I was five or should i say the electronic keyboard more accurately mm -hmm. because my sister had started to take lessons uh, when i was a child and so i also got interested in it because i was playing a lot and mostly bothering her during her lessons so my mom decided that i would take lessons on my own mm -hmm. so be be you know i'll say that between the ages of five and eleven i was toying around with the piano Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even I wasn't even learning how to read music. I was mostly just learning through a system of numbers. Interesting. Okay. And uh, and so by by the time we flew to Miami, I'll say I was a very shy kid, mostly introvert. And I think at that point in time, music was a little bit of a of an escape valve. Yeah, me. of course. And and that was around the time that I started to write music. I mm. I had this fantastic dream you know where I was playing a piano and what was different about it is that by the time I woke up I remembered what I was playing in my dream mm. and so I went to the keyboard I you know figured it out mm. and then the next day I started to play around with those motifs and, and that will be officially my first uh, attempt at composing I would say to this day do you still get inspiration out of dreams or is it more uh, spontaneous in the banal day-to-day -day. how does how does your inspiration strike you well you know the the brain operates in mysterious ways and sometimes we are really immersed in the work mm -hmm. uh, I won't be able to stop thinking about it and I will simply go to bed uh, mm -hmm. with all those musical ideas in mind and at some point during the night they might take shape and I might just need to sit down and you know, wake up, write them out, and go back to bed. I mean, it does happen. Uh, not very often, but um, yeah, dreams are a component that uh, still play a role in, in my creative life, I would say. And you've written a work about synesthesia. Does 
does the brain itself and the neurological system, does that, is that an area of fascination for you or just happen to coalesce that way? Well, that work, um, that actually, because a commissioner has such specific um, parameters, I wanted to make the most out of it. And hmm. this is for a, a program called, um, it, it was a program in, in Radio France, you hmm. know, uh, which consisted of, they will be airing basically two minutes of music Monday through Friday. Um, it's called A La Breve. And then on Saturday, they will air the five movements together, making up a 10-minute piece. Hmm. So I really was trying to break my head thinking, how am I going to give unity to this piece? Because first of all, it's going to be aired in separate days and then all together. So it has to make sense both as individual movements and as a whole. Hmm. And then I was thinking about the number five and what is important, what is relevant about the number five. And I came to the conclusion that, well, the five senses mm -hmm. are such a thing that are very independent, but at the same time, they, we, they are all interacting constantly. Absolutely. And then the idea of interaction gained traction. And then I realized, well, there is a condition called synesthesia where actually some people are unable to disconnect two senses. Yeah. They can see things well listening to sounds or taste things while looking at something. So um, I myself haven't experienced that, but I found it, um, I really did some research and I, then I started to delve into how to, you know, create each movement. And the first movement is called touch and it focuses on percussion. second is called odorat so the smell and it's mostly strings and it has this ethereal kind of way and so each movement starts to focus on a different instrumental group and a different sense So that's, that's how that, that piece came about.
you got that NASA commission. Yes. Um, Ad Astra. So, <laughs> so yes. first off. It hasn't been played, uh, perf- um, sorry, it has been performed and premiered and recorded, but it hasn't been released yet. So first question I have to ask, are we alone? Well, you know, <laughs> not, I wish not, I had not, the answer not, for that. <laughs> no, I'm asking you, I'm asking you, not the piece. I know how the piece ends. Uh, for you, are we alone? I want to believe that we are not so. And, you know, the more you research about it and, and, and the more you understand about how life is so prevalent and, and, and so... Um, there are so many signs around us that might indicate that we are not, you know, probabilistically also not, you know, the Drake the equation. Yeah. Correct. I mean, you, you might want to think that, yeah, we're incredibly special and, but you know, the universe is so vast, not only in terms of the amount of space in between solar systems and planets, but also in terms of the amount of time. So it is conceivable that we might have had billions of civilizations already, but we might have never met because they might have gone extinct or are about to sprout some roots in the in the universe. So, and and that move, we you know that piece. Um, it was commissioned by the Houston Symphony, and I immediately made a connection between Houston and NASA because that's where the Janssen Space oh, Center uh, Center is, you know, control, and. But each movement is, is kind of a homage to a different mission. You know, the first one is called Voyager, the second one is Apollo, and then there's Hubble, and then there's um, the Challenger mission, which is, brings the aspect of, of tragedy and risk you know, that is involved in space exploration. The last movement, though, Revelation, it has a little bit of a biblical, I know, um, uh, kind of ring to it, but, uh, and I do use seven trumpets in the end, but, <laughs> but the interesting thing is that that it is more or less a fantasy uh, of uh, envisioning a day where we will be meeting another civilization. And the way this happens, I, you know, in, in, in that symphony's world, is that someone detects the Morse code that is contained within the Voyager probe. Because Carl Sagan inserted a gold, golden record mm-hmm. uh, in both Voyager probes. And among the many things that are in there, there is one uh, message encoded in Morse. Mm-hmm. The original message is per aspira ad astra, which means through hardship to the stars. And so I took the ad astra portion of it and I, you know, I presented it as a Morse code and that became the rhythmic motif. That's the very first thing that you hear in the vibraphone in the piece and that's one of the last things that you hear also in the last movement. So we kind of start a dialogue back and forth through that. One thing you mentioned in the world of the piece, do all your pieces occupy a different world for you or are they all more part of Jimmy Lopez? You know, the symphonies especially are a little bit like self-contained worlds. And I always say that when I finished Belcanto, the opera, I felt that I was ready to tackle the symphonic form. So I've written to date three symphonies. I actually concluded my third just a few days ago. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pandemic project and it was not the easiest to pull off, but I think I poured everything into it (laughs) for sure. Beautiful. Um, But, you know, the symphonies are, you know, in Mahler's view, they were kind of uh, 
the whole the whole world could be containing them almost. Mm-hmm. And I think Mahler viewed the symphony in the same way that perhaps Wagner will view opera, you know, like the Gesamtskunst work in a way. And and for me, symphonies are that. They are self-contained worlds that have to take you through a journey. And the journey, you know, starts with a usually with a very small cell. And it is really that trajectory and what you do with it, um, how it grows, how it develops, how it transitions, how it overlaps with other ideas. It is almost like telling a story where you have different characters and you have you see them grow, you see them interact, you see them being juxtaposed. So it, it is that what makes for me like the symphony is a self-contained world. Every piece of mine, of course, has a different point of departure. And as we speak, spoke about in STC, for example, that work also has its own self-contained concept. Of course. Um, so I try to have a different departure point, but I think in symphonies, especially because you have more time um, and you know and room to really explore things, then I, it feels more of a more of a unit, uh, self-contained unit. Do you feel more inspired or restricted by writing a long-form work with a libretto, for instance? You have the Dreamer's Oratorio, you have Bel Canto, obviously. Do you feel like having the the guidelines, the box of the libretto, the text, uh, does that aid or or make it more difficult for you in your You know, process? the one thing that's important is who is your collaborator? And that will be my only advice to young composers as well. If you are going to work with a librettist, make sure that you and him or her understand each other really, really well. Because the writing of the text is not set in stone. It should be something that flows back and forth. And so there are moments, or there were specifically also in Dreamers, times at which I was writing the piece and things were happening in the real world, you know, because that, that piece in particular was about a crisis that we were facing, I still face today. And there is a movement, the third one, that is called Children. And um, as Nilo was writing it, and I was setting it to music, you know, we were being fed in the news all this crisis about children being detained at the border. So uh, that it was inevitable to take that into account. So I will go back to Nilo and say, Nilo, can you write 
10 more verses or can you, and then he would do that. And then I will feel that the music was demanding more. And so I will ask for even more or twice or three times what I need. And if you don't have a collaborator who's willing to understand your needs as a composer, it's going to be really hard for you. You know, that the other end has to be an open end. And, and what Neil always said, I supply you with words. You know, you take what you need and what you, and, and really the music is a driving force in opera and in oratorios. So one has to, if one is too constrained by only the words, then you won't allow the musical ideas to flow. You know, so what I, what I try to do is this, I memorize the text and I repeat it to myself. I in, uh, interiorize, you know, inter internalize it to the point that I feel that the birth of the music comes naturally out of the rhythm of the voice as well, or, or, or the rhythm of the words and the verses. But once you have, you're in the act of setting this to music, then you will notice that there are certain musical motifs that might require a little more time to develop. And that is the time when you go back to, you know, the librettist and ask, can you give me more words? Or there are moments when you feel that the statement was already made and you don't need any more, and then you have to cut the text, you know? So, so that is the way it is. In that sense, I never felt constrained about it. But it really depends on how good of a, of an understanding you have with your collaborator. Of course, and you've worked with Nilo, uh, how, yeah. how many years? Well, no, now we have had three projects together. We are yeah. dreaming of having more, for Beautiful. sure. And, and we, we, yeah, once, once you understand each other, I, now I understand why you have this Hofmer style of Strauss, the Ponte Mozart relationship. Because of course. Once you find someone who understands you, it's almost like you don't, you, you complete each other's sentences, you know? That's beautiful. I mean, there's always the example that everyone gives of, oh, Beethoven was a bad opera composer. Beethoven spent half his life looking for a good libretto. <laughs> he didn't have his Hofmannsthal. Indeed, indeed. And, and I think that will have made a difference for sure. I mean, we can only think, for example, if you think of in collaboration terms, not in terms of words, but if you think of concertos, for example, I mean, beautiful that he wrote this violin concerto. Why did he not write a cello concerto, for example? Well, perhaps he didn't find the right collaborator. Yeah. No. So Why did he finish the other violin concerto that he started? <laughs> well, if he even transcribed it for the piano, right? Exactly. No, it's, it's so fascinating because I feel like that old model of the, the, the duo, the collaborator, it's in this globalized age where composers are getting commissions all over the place, it's so much rarer to find frequent collaborators between composer librettists who, who work consistently together. You don't see it as much. Do you feel no. like it's part of an older tradition? You know, you have to put your foot down sometimes in the sense that if you only, if your catalog of works is only driven by the next commission, that you have, and you don't really have a vision of how you want your catalog to look like, then you'll end up with a lot of scattered works for perhaps very uh, odd um, ensembles. And that's, in a way, it is fine. You know, if that is what thrives, you know, what gives you this energy to continue doing and exploring different combinations, that's, that's great. But on the other hand, I always look at, for example, if you look at Beethoven's output, if, since we are in the Beethoven year, you, know, uh, you think of 
32 sonatas, you think of 16 string quartets, uh, nine symphonies. It's like a very solid catalog, you know, of, of works. Obviously, times are different, and he will have with his publisher agreements for a number of quartets and a number of piano sonatas, mm -hmm. which is of course. something that doesn't take place uh, in our day and time. However, um, why am I writing my third symphony? I think it's really because I have uh, steered the project that came my way into, you know, creating a catalog of symphonies. Nobody has specifically asked me, can you write a, a symphony? But I felt that the project um, required that kind of form. So I decided instead of writing a extended orchestral piece, I felt that the symphonic form here is what actually will be best to convey this. And for dreamers, I felt an oratorio is what needs to be done here. So I am trying to steer, you know, my, and I also want to write extended works for the piano, for example, which I haven't had a chance to do because that's my original instrument anyway. But when you talk about collaborations, for example, when you have um, Kronos Quartet and Philip Glass, that kind of synergy, you know, when you find it, you have to take advantage of it. You recognize it. And even if the commission doesn't say, oh, even if nobody really wants that, if, if you and the collaboration, uh, collaborator have the motivation to work together, then you will find it. It's, it's also so interesting on top of that, you know, because you, collaborations are also important and rare, but when they happen, they gel really well. Um, but also the forms you're choosing are sort of from an older tradition. You don't right. see symphonic, I mean, you have Maslanka symphonies today, sure, but the symphony itself, uh, the oratorio you're you're dealing in forms that are sort of you're you're dragging them tooth and nail into the modern era <laughs> it's so fascinating because what's the standard for like a, a composer competition like an open submission what seven minutes to 20 minutes something like that correct correct i have written my share of short symphonic works of course, and Short Fiesta, and one of the most played pieces in the world. Congratulations <laughs> always on that. It just reached a hundred recently, and it's uh, going God bless. Fine. Well, next thing, a hundred countries. <laughs> well, I promised myself I will stop counting once we reach this milestone. I think, I think it, it's, it's we've you know it has been played from New Zealand to Siberia, God bless Peru and Chile and Argentina. I, I just of lost course. track of 
how many places uh, it's been done. But I think part of uh, its success has to do with how mobile it is and the ensemble, you know, it was written originally for a chamber music ensemble, mm. basically a mini sinfonietta uh, of single winds. And then you have the orchestra version for double winds, you know, and brass. So that makes it very portable. And, and of course it is, it has a catchy name and it, it is uh, approachable and people like it. So, but even then I, it's, it's, it's something that I would call uh, a suite of dances. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, and I actually subtitled it Four Pop Dances for Orchestra and, and very much imbued by the spirit of the Baroque, you know, suite of dances, for example, like if you have Saravans, Gavots, and Kurans and Alemans, what stops you from having trance and techno, you know? Exactly. So we are not, you know, there was an attempt uh, in the 20th century to break from tradition. And I think it was necessary um, because we, those composers at that time, face of, first of all, facing, you know, changing circumstances in the world, two world wars, um, uh, the fall, the rise and fall of communism, the, 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 the fall of all the, the, the colonial empires. Um, the world was going through change. So we, the composers in that time, didn't want to be associated with the past. And when the forms of the past call into mind all those things, you know. Nowadays, I think baggage. because we have the, correct, yeah. a lot of baggage. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. Uh, and and you see that reaching is extreme in Darmstadt, in Darmstadt Music School. Of course, where I've been actually, I've been in Darmstadt three times, and and I was awarded the, the grand prize, the Kronsteiner Prize, which I was surprised actually that I, they would they would like my music to that extent. Uh, but I, I was very eager to explore this other aspect of myself, too. I actually wanted to ask, it's, it's, it's so incredible that you brought up Darmstadt, and congratulations, that's a, that's a wild prize to receive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you hear to my music now... Well, exactly, that's quite different. And, and that's, that's the question I have. I mean, you still live in the Bay Area. Yes. You spent five years in a PhD program at... Berkeley, a school that historically is avant-garde, performance art, I mean, with Sinmat there. This year, it's the 60th anniversary of Lamont Young's Compositions 1960, performed at the noon concerts over at Hertz Hall, yeah. uh, where he tried to light a fire on stage during one of the performances, <laughs> and they said no. But it's, a, it's an avant-garde program in a lot of ways, and I'm curious how your language fit in with that? Was there a bit of a, you asserting your own identity? And I know this isn't always the case because you have other composers like Mason coming out as well. Right. Who, right. And you both write works that generally are extremely approachable without sacrificing any artistic integrity. And that's a difficult balance. So I'm curious where the avant-garde education you received fits in with that. Where does audience approachability come in with your guesstimation of how do you approach a work? How does it all fit together, all these pieces? That is precisely what each composer is called to do, you know. When, uh, and, you know, a composer is a work in progress all throughout uh, his or her life. We, we are never done, honestly, exploring. And I think that's the way to keep the creative spirit alive. So one of the things that I, I you know, I am a person 
that is interesting in a lot of things. I am by nature kind of an eclectic uh, person when it comes to taste, when it comes to taste in food, in movies, in books, and music as well. And that just simply reflects in the music I write. I think it has to do a lot with one's personality as well. So I will say that the avant-garde school um, allows or allowed me specifically at that point also to explore aspects that might not have been welcome, let's say, at a traditional concert stage with a large symphony orchestra. And so I took advantage of that and I felt, wow, so this is a forum, Darmstadt, where I can explore that aspect and I will go for it. And so I did. And then there are other um, forums where you feel, oh, this is actually the place where I can explore a work like Fiesta. So then I'll go for it because I know that the audience will be receptive to it as well. And and I am, and this is not me trying to pander to an audience, you know, because that will be the difference. It, if you are pandering to an audience, I think that's when you start to betray yourself. Definitely. If you are writing something that you think might resonate with an audience but doesn't resonate with you, then that won't work. I think it will not feel genuine and authentic. So I, I have to say all the music I write is music that I like to listen to. And mostly it's music that I wish existed but doesn't. And so that's the reason why I created it because I feel it has to exist. And, you know, when I... Within a work, there are works that will allow you to explore all of it like an opera. In Bel Canto, for example, there are um, some moments where you might feel that, oh, this is a very avant-garde sounding passage. Well, the, what happens on stage at the moment merits that. And you will feel, oh, this sounds like a Baroque you know, aria. And you feel, well, we are within a moment in the opera well, that might have religious connotations and you feel that this is actually appropriate. So. That is the beauty about also stage works that they allow you to blend in all this. So you have you come with an arsenal, you know, of tools that you have garnered all throughout your life, but you cannot do that if you limit yourself to a single aesthetic, uh, you know, current. So you will uh, you will limit yourself already, and that that's not what I like to do. So I, I like to see historical perspectives the same way. Uh, and we were talking about forms. Why embrace forms that are that are old? Well, uh, why not? If you feel that you know a form that was invented 300 years ago might actually serve the purposes of telling a story or give a structure to a story today, I'm op also open to not even thinking about form. You know, and honestly, it is only in name because if you look at my symphonies. Um, there is more of a concept of what a symphony is, but I'm not doing the sonata form or the rondo form. I mean, if of you course, analyze exactly. formally within, if you really go into the music, you will see that formally each work is very, very different and it just follows its own path. You know? Yeah, that's something that's so fascinating. Um, I don't know if you've read it. Um, the Elements of Sonata Theory by Hepakoski and Darcy, famous theory book. It's brilliant deconstruction of the sonata form kind of a uh, really a, a tearing down and rebuilding of how we all learn sonata form when we're in undergrad the first time or you know late high school oh you have the exhibition oh it goes into extreme detail going through every possible sonata form but one thing it doesn't 
leave out and it emphasizes in one of the chapters is the narrative importance mm -hmm. and it's just a means to an end to give narrative coherence correct correct and i think i think that's exactly uh what's the aim of each composition right each each composition needs its own sort of unique gelled narrative and and that is usually born from the material we are not no longer bound by the classical forms but you even see the classical composers challenging those forms and we mostly you know any analysis of a sonata by you know the great composers will have an exception or two uh, a small deviation and a further exploration that it doesn't exactly fit into the mold so one also has to be very careful when analyzing something um, from that perspective not to try to forcefully fit those works into the mold but understand really what is it in the work itself that is leading us or giving us that structure and when i write nowadays i i really don't my point of departure is the musical cell and it is always I, I try to analyze what are the properties of the motif itself what are where is it leaning in terms of does it have a tonal center that what are the prominent intervals uh, what happens when you expand it or contract it what might be a resulting scale out of this combination of sounds and and when you really like dissect your little um, you know cell you start finding more and more and that's that's how it grows you know that that's how at least how i conceive the symphonic form um or any 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 form um you know that is going to serve as a basis for a large work especially um it needs to have those pillars uh, but it, they all have to go back at least in my view to that single building block Listen, Jimmy, uh, you and I have talked politics before in small doses. We both live in the Bay Area. This is not a, a zone that is devoid of politics, let's say. It's hard to, it's hard to be apolitical here. So now I'm, I'm going to be curious uh, and blunt. Uh, you know, I have an immigrant family. As 
a South American composer, a person of color in this country, working in a traditionally white, heteronormative industry, uh, which thankfully things are improving. How have the past four years been for you, emotionally, artistically? Uh, and where do you think the arts are right now? Because I know so much of your identity is tied in with your works, both external and internal. Wow, well, yeah, lots of food for thought. I mean, I am lucky I live in Berkeley. I, I know most people, uh, even within the country, don't really understand uh, what Berkeley is about until they come here and kind of breathe it in. Because the level of freedom, acceptance, and, and openness um, are really hard to find elsewhere in the country. Um, you might find some pockets uh, where you can find like-minded people. But Berkeley and the whole San Francisco Bay Area, to be honest, it, it, is, it is kind of this bubble in a way that uh, for us who live here, it feels protective. And, and, but, you know, for others who are outside, it might seem incomprehensible and inaccessible as well. So there are clear political leanings, especially the, I mean, Berkeley, you know, has been traditionally very forward looking and a place for protest since the Vietnam era and prior. And um, when I wrote Dreamers, for example, I, the reason why I, wanted to connect it to the, it was because the, it inspired, it was inspired by the city of Berkeley. For example, the fact that Berkeley was the first city in the nation to, to be a sanctuary city. And that, I, at that time, was connected to dissidents from the Vietnam War, but it went on to expand uh, the concept in, and include uh, the concept of immigration as well. So you said it well, I'm an immigrant, I've you know, live now more time out of Peru than within Peru. And I've lived in places like Miami for a year and France for a year and Helsinki for seven years and here for 13. So I, my vision of things is not narrow-minded. You know, I, I, don't, I know that not everybody has had the opportunity to, to see the world like I have. But especially us in the arts world, we have the, the chance to travel, to, to interact with people from different nationalities and to see that we can create something beautiful together regardless of our uh, differences. You know? And an, an example that I find inspiring, for example, is the, the, the Eastern Western Divan Orchestra. Of course, um, Byron Boehm correct. and Edward Said having founded it. Correct, and you, you, you see this, people from different, you know, clashing backgrounds um, that are supposed to be in constant, at odds with each other constantly, and then creating beautiful music together. I think it is so poetic in its own way. I wish the case were here as well. <laughs> we could create oh, yeah. something similar to, to, to understand that we are not as divided as we seem to be. And when I just talk about bubbles, and this is something that's being mentioned a lot nowadays, and it is true, we are fed through social media or whatever our choices are, only the information that we want to receive. Definitely. So 
we both have to understand that we are not being objective in this. We need to make an effort to separate ourselves from that and and listen, you know, listen to the other side. Definitely. To respond to your question about how the last four years have been, I honestly feel that we have entered a period in history that is beyond politics. I mean, this last government for me was beyond being Republican or Democrat. It was be, you know, whether you have a moral duty to stand up. Absolutely. And when you trespass, you know, uh, certain norms uh, of respect, of basic uh, respect for human rights, even, and for, you know, beyond people's differences, then you feel that, uh, that we are losing a bit of our humanity in the process. You know? Not the first time this has happened in, the, in history. And, and unfortunately, history does repeat itself, especially for those who are, haven't made the effort to look and study it. So we risk um, entering a dark era uh, because not, the election that just transpired is not going to be the end of it. Of course not. Um, the divisions continue and, and the anger continues. And so if that is not properly addressed, we will not, we will not have a, a good outcome out of this. We don't have to feel, you know, because I feel that sometimes things in history, especially reach a boiling point, then disaster ensues, then humanity understands that this was not a good thing. And then we sit down at the table, talk and try to avoid things, you know. <laughs> I wish we don't. We wouldn't have to go through that cycle over and over again, and we will be able to prevent, you know, exactly the the, the actual violence that happens. I think, for example, uh, one example of successful international cooperation has been the fact that no other nuclear warhead has been detonated since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and. Um, the fact that we have been able to start closing up again the ozone layer, you know, which demanded a huge amount of international cooperation for that to happen. So we are capable of changing the course of history, but we have to understand that we cannot be irresponsible. And this is what I feel has been coming from the leadership, irresponsibility, recklessness, lack of understanding, lack of empathy, uh, and lack of uh, vision. You cannot just um, uh, recklessly play with, when you're wielding such a powerful tool. You know when you have when you have that, along comes the responsibility. And when you're not willing to to uh, assume the responsibility, then then you have lost all my respect. You know. So obviously, um, I don't expect. Uh, a lot of people to agree with me and the election says it clearly over we have millions you know who are who are thinking in a different way but what i want to think is that what we do for example which is ultimately i am not a politician i am a musician and as composers and musicians we have a platform as well uh, we might use that platform to either address those issues when we have to or not. I think it is important to every now and then do so. And, you know, when I was given the chance to write this oratorio, I took the opportunity 
and I wrote about a subject that might be uncomfortable or confrontational, but I focused on the human aspect. I try to focus not on the differences, but in the commonality. Um, so, and even when it came to Bel Canto, for example, I, the opera, um, some people feel uncomfortable by the fact that we were emphasizing or going into the terrorists' minds and humanity, you know. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we cannot, uh, we don't gain anything from just creating a cartoonish depiction of people uh, because people are not like that. We are very complex individuals and we have lots of different motivations that drive us to do things. And so, for example, the controversy created around Klinghoffer. Yes, um, I was going to bring up. Yeah, I, I felt that was actually, uh, and that happened prior to Belcanzo. So we took all the possible steps to avoid such a situation in Chicago. And I think Anthony Troy did a beautiful job at that. And we have lots of post-performance talks also to address whatever issues people had with it. And, um, but I feel dialogue is actually the answer, right? So art should not be censored um, and art should be encouraged to tackle those issues. And for those who are, I also, I also feel that, and this is gonna be the counterpoint because I have, even though I live in Berkeley and I consider myself a liberal-minded person, I am also central, in more, more centric in the sense that I am, I like equity, I like to see, see things, um, you know, uh, in balance. My husband jokes that it's because I'm a Libra, but well, so be it. <laughs> Me too. I, I do like to see both sides of things. And I also feel that if we go too hard, you know, um, on relentlessly attacking the other side, um, then we might just end up speaking to our echo chamber and only like-minded people will listen to us and then we'll lose our capacity to persuade the other side. Um, but as I said, the one thing to do by that is focusing what is it common in us. I am sure that you know during those Western Eastern Divan rehearsals, they are not discussing politics. Of course. Precisely. That whole point of it is not to discuss politics, it's to talk about the music, to create beautiful music together, right? So whenever you are tackling a work that might actually bring those uh, opposing forces together, focus on what, what, what is it that brings us together. And you will notice that that area of commonality starts to grow and grow and grow more than we usually think. Um, differences are healthy and we, we have to embrace them and allow people to voice their differences, but we can never again cross the threshold. Um, we should never again do, do that. Of course. Is there, so there's exactly like you said, there's two sides to it, right? Do we have the moral imperative to comment on the most egregious things, or even if it's not violations per se, just on our opinions and what we view as morally right, do we have an, an obligation, a moral imperative to do so as artists, specifically because we're artists? Or, um, you know, the expression in basketball uh, that a lot of 
rich, typically white basketball fans, when whenever players mention politics, shut up and dribble. Um, <laughs> there's also uh, Michael Jordan, who's an incredible human being in terms of his just competitive drive and, and grit. Um, he was asked to comment once on an election and uh, uh, and he said, well, listen, Republicans buy sneakers too. <laughs> and that's, that it's something I want to bring up because it, this is a touchy subject. So we, we can always edit this out. Uh, <laughs> is there a way to overlook one's political leanings when there's this um, sort of implied necessary respect because they're the ones paying our bills. They're the yeah. ones whose finances are providing us art. Um, or is it sort of this antiquated fiefdom, serfdom, medieval kind of Haydn, Esterhazy kind of thing? I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that. Well, change, uh, change takes, takes time to, to take place. Um, I will say there's, there's a time for everything. There are, I, the institutional change that we want to see in terms of diversity and inclusion won't take place until diversity and inclusion has really creeped into every single aspect of our lives. Until you have a diverse group of music critics, which is also yes. a male white dominated field. Absolutely. And they're not letting go of those positions. Well, there you go. Uh, until you have a diverse board, which is, which in turn means that it will, it will but since most of the wealth is not in the hands of uh, diverse groups, then that will take some time exactly. to happen as well. That needs to be encouraged, of course. So there goes um, I, the other time we had um, an opening conference with Opera America, and uh, David Gockley was in it, Francesca Zambella was in it. And there were very interesting ideas there, but you can see how, for example, when David Gockley was a young man, how different his concerns on the world he lived in was. For example, at that point, his main concern was that there was no American canon of opera, and that most of the opera companies around the country were run by people with Italian or German sounding names. Therefore, most of the repertoire was Italian or German. So there was a concern about diversity, but not in terms of whether it's white or heteronormative. That was way too far <laughs> in the future for them to be worried about it. Their concern at that point was like, they need to create American art. That might have seemed a little bit like radical at that point. And it probably was, not anymore. Now we're at a different stage of life that we do have a respectable amount of opera that has been created in the country, but is it diverse enough? So one step at a time. I wouldn't despair. I think that we are heading towards that because the racial makeup of this country is changing. Absolutely. And I think those people who are representative of, you know, what, what the country used to look like might be uh, afraid of change. And it is kind of natural. You see when, when the person is not educated, it usually translates into hatred and vitriol. Um, but when a person is educated, it might be a little more difficult to tell, you know, there might be 
some clear indications onto how an endowment can be used that might exclude some groups that might not be as evident. You know? So, but I would actually try to focus on the youth at this point in time. I wouldn't waste too much time on trying to change people's minds who are over 16, 70. Um, they are always welcome to take part, of course. But I think change is going to come from generations that are experiencing and witnessing the struggle that we are going through now. For sure. And, and this is usually how it happens. Education. Education is one of those tools that everybody talks about, but well, what are we doing about it? You know, what you're doing right now with this podcast is education in a way. And what our orchestras and organizations around the country do when they create pre-concert talks or material that explains why a new work is needed, that is education as well. And composers, when we tackle contemporary issues that might be thorny, we're also trying to educate ourselves and others. You know, it's a it's a it's a process that goes on. So, I, you know, I, I do feel, of course, that um, one. You know, if you talk about where the funds come from, should one be conflicted by oh, this money is coming from this and that source? Well, that is a choice. If the source, you know, really has clearly made. Um, statements that are derogatory, uh, detrimental to people's dignity. And, you know, accepting that money, of course, that will be, you uh, know, in, in a way, complicity. You know. But if the source or the person or institution has different views than we do, but you know, contain, maintains a love for the arts, a respect for people, then I wouldn't be troubled about it. You know? It really depends on the fine, the fine lines that are difficult to navigate for an institution. And I know that CEOs at orchestras, at, for example, CEOs located in places that are prominently uh, conservative, um, Generally, what happens is the arts institutions tend to be more liberal in their thoughts. In their Definitely, thinking. yeah. But they might be placed within a very conservative society um, or community. What do you tell them? Do you tell them, no, just get out yeah. of there? No. I think it's actually much better for them to, to navigate delicately those waters and try to bring those donors into and explain to them why. You know? I... Um, I won't name the orchestra, but um, we were going to play Dreamers uh, um, at another spot, uh, but it was it was canceled due to COVID, etc. It couldn't take place. But um, while it was programmed, the CEO actually faced a little backlash uh, about that from one of the donors hmm. who was very Republican leaning and who felt there was no need to really address this issue because perhaps he didn't think there was a, an issue the same way we did. So, but the CEO was smart enough to say, you know, if you look at Mozart's words, Figaro, for example, um, and in its time, the play was very controversial. The Beaumarchais, so, absolutely. So composers have dealt with 
thorny issues and delicate issues all throughout time, that was the question that we had. And so I think that's important for us to know, um, to acknowledge that there are different there are different opinions and views of things, but the solution is not to um, completely bluff them, you know. For sure. Um, the solution is to, to really try to do the work from within. Jimmy, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Stefano. We sometimes look at history as a fixed moment in time, but you don't, you don't know, you know, what was behind every single premiere and all the things that now are, we look at them as museum pieces, but they were alive and well at a certain point. Yeah, and listen, we're all human. And the sooner we get away from the stuffy, crusty white bow tie, <laughs> uh, we can maybe get a new audience in the halls too. And uh, Agreed, 100%. It's human music, right? Indeed. All right, my friend, you stay well. You too, Stella. Have a safe flight. Thank you again. And we'll chat soon. Don't be a stranger. Absolutely. Each work of art, each artist, each person is another brick laid upon the choices, voices, and experiences of the past. Join me next week as we continue our journey to uncover what's not there.